Good morning. Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm going through purity. Excuse that. It's about time I've been waiting all this. You know, finally, I'm getting a manly voice. Happy New Year, everybody. I, I really hope that you had an enjoyable uh, Christmas and New Year's with family, friends, maybe with some strangers, whatever was going on. I hope it was an enjoyable time, I will tell you. Simply in the interest of having self-pity on myself, I, I, I had a miserable Christmas. Thank you very much. Uh, as some of you know, I was, this was the first Christmas where I didn't preach the Christmas Eve service. This was the first, thanks, Dan, for stepping up at the last minute. Uh, you, you would not have wanted to hear what was coming out of my mouth on Christmas Eve. And so I had to spend Christmas Eve and Christmas, and there's three Christmas parties we have every year with family, friends, or whatever, and, and, and two of them, I see people that I don't see the rest of the year. And so it's huge to miss them, but I had to skip out of all three parties, and there's nothing more lonely than being home alone on Christmas Eve, and everyone's having fun, but you can't go because you're contaminated, everybody. Woe is me. So I was too sick to do anything, so I, I caught up on all the Christmas movies I had. Like I, Christmas Vacation, I've never watched that from beginning to end. And having watched it, now I know why I haven't. But, but it, it was kind of funny. And uh, Home Alone and, and then my favorite, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Well, that one really touched me. How, how many of you have seen Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol? Yeah. Hand for a hand was made in the world. Why don't my fingers reach? Millions of grains of sand in the world. Why such a lonely beach? And then he sings, I'm all alone in the world. And that's exactly how he felt on Christmas Eve. Okay, I survived it. But, uh, hey, okay, so i uh, got to start off the year with some bad news and some good news, right? Bad news is uh, we ended the year uh, $76,000 or so behind budget, so we're going to have to make some cuts. Uh, the good news is that's $84,000 less than was the case a week earlier. <laughs> so people came through at the last minute, thank you so much, sacrificial giving and all of that. And so it's, hey, we have to make some cuts, but it's less than half of what we would have made. And so thanks for your, your dedication, for your giving and, and all of that. Um, this, it, it's, it's a sacrifice that makes the kingdom go forward. Any other announcements I'm supposed to make? Yeah, um, I wanted to start off by saying this is an announcement, really. I guess it is. But you decide. I appreciate you guys. Okay, that's the announcement. I want to just start, start with a word of thanks. Um, one of the things I love about Woodland Hills Church is that, that we're, we're, we're a body of people who commit to passionately worshiping God and passionately pouring out ourselves for others. Uh, that's how the kingdom works. We want to replicate the sacrificial love of God towards others. But we're also a, 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 a people who have been always committed to, to being thoughtful about things, to thinking through things. We take seriously the command of Jesus to worship God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And that's when it gets shortchanged quite a bit. The mind is meant to think. That's what you do with your brain. It's a nonstop thinking machine, and we're supposed to worship God by how we think. Worship God with your think. And, and, and part of how we do that is by being authentic, by being real, uh, by being authentic with what, what, what you believe and what you know and what you don't know and, and, and what are the problems, and thinking, being asked about issues that are there, not pretending like we've got all the answers on stuff. I appreciate an environment where, where you can do that. I, I'm aware that that's kind of rare in churches. We encourage questioning. We encourage thinking, even outside the box. If an old box isn't working, well, then let's find a better box, you know, and you know, there's, I, I, I get pastors all the time expressing kind of an envy towards me. And, and they're always asking, like, how do you get away with saying that stuff? Because <laughs> you know, they, 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 they're trying to move their congregations forward, but they got, you know, there's landmines all over the place, and you don't want to offend that person. You want to, you know, and so you always got to couch watch how you, and I've never been good at that. So, and that's a virtue, because I, I, I'm glad I'm no good at that, because then that allows you just to be a bull in a china shop. You just say what's, what's real, what, what's going on, what's... 
And, and, and we can talk about that. We can, I'm glad that we don't have to have a group think about everything. Like everyone's supposed to sign up and have all the same views on everything. I, we want to major in the major and minor in the minors. And the major is about being poured out in love for others, living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And next to that, almost everything else is minor. But we want to be okay with just talking about the problems and the issues. So yeah, I've got a, a book coming out. Uh, and in the acknowledgement section, I want to say what I said about you. Here's what I, here's what I said about you in my acknowledgement. That's a good way to start off the year. First, I said for starters, I am blessed beyond measure to pastor an unusual, certainly unusual, passionate, <laughs> Christ-centered, Bible-based, evangelical, Anabaptist church, Woodland Hills Church in Maplewood, Minnesota, that supports their senior pastor writing a potentially controversial book like this. Uh, the title of the book is, is Inspired Imperfection, How the Bible's Problems Enhance Its Authority. It could be controversial. And you haven't fired me yet. That's what I, it blows me away. Uh, thank you, Woodland Hills, for always being willing to join me in, in joining my exploration of new ways of looking at old problems. And I am honored to be your, have been your pastor for the last 27 exciting years. And 28 will be the most exciting of all. Amen? Thank you, guys. I love you. I just love you guys. I, 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 I'm so blessed to be able to get up here and think out loud. Um, I, I also say this, I, I dedicate the book to our pastors and staff, and I should have included our overseers, sorry Greg, um, and now they'll probably fire me, but I forgot, because you guys were part of this, so just apply it by proxy. But I say this, I have to express my profound appreciation for the remarkable pastors and staff and overseers of Woodland Hills Church, to whom this book is dedicated. I doubt there are many pastoral teams on the planet that spend as much time and energy discussing contested theological issues as we do. I love that we're odd like this. And I, for one, am the better for it. Uh, we, we have a lot of discussions on stuff. I think a lot of churches, they just sort of inherit, they just assume a certain theology and never think about it. Since we know the truth, we don't have to ever think about it. Uh, but we don't have that approach here. We take our theology very, very seriously. And we're always wrestling with stuff. Uh, and what's the biblical perspective on this? And, and, and uh, talking about race relations, gender issues, LGBTQ issues, the ideal church issues. We're always talking about that stuff, and we don't always agree on, on things. And that's part of the beauty of it because we want to have a love that is bigger than our differences, all right? A love that can handle those differences. And everything we, we do is supposed to be in love, right? 1 Corinthians 16, 14. So we're aware that how we debate issues is more important than what conclusions we come up with. It really is. And we want to do everything in love. I just appreciate a context where we can discuss things like that and be out loud with stuff. I, there's one more dedication I want to mention. I mean, I've mentioned a few others here, but uh, this lady doesn't get enough attention, enough recognition. Uh, she basically runs the church. I don't. Uh, you wouldn't want me to. Uh, uh, her name's Janice Rowling. She's a very behind-the-scenes person. She's, she's fine with doing all the work and letting other people take the credit, which is what that job requires, and that's rare to have a person like that. It is. And so I, I, I said, here, I, I want to give a special word of appreciation to Janice Rowling, the executive pastor of Wilderness Hills Church for the last 22 years. God has used this extraordinary and extraordinarily strange woman, she is very strange, to not only create the unique other-oriented staff culture we have at Woodland Hills Church, that's where we share our space with everybody, uh, but also to prophetically guide our church at crucial junctures in our history. If you take uh, Discovered uh, Wilderness Hills, they tell a few stories about her prophetic words. I think they, they used to anyways. They should. Janice, I say this to her personally, the longer I have the opportunity to minister alongside of you, the more appreciative I've become of the precious gift that you are to Woodland Hills Church and to the body of Christ as a whole. Thank you, Janice Rowlings. Give it up for Janice.
She's a remarkable woman. You know, if, if, so I, can, I, I, I get up and I can declare, here's the direction we should go. Uh, but I don't have any aptitude for being able to tell you practically how to get there. Uh, and, and so we'd be great on vision and low on accomplishing anything if it was left up to me. So you, you keep her in your prayer and thank God for, for, for Janice Rowlings. Uh, so the book is Inspired in Perfection, uh, How the Bible's Problems Enhance Its Divine Authority, and it's potentially controversial. In fact, it will certainly be controversial. Not necessarily for, for if you've been here at Woodland Hills Church for a year or more, I, I, this is going to be like old stuff. I mean, after Cross Vision and Crucifixion of the Warrior God, this is a walk in the park. So it's not going to be that controversial here, I don't think, because uh, we've been kind of talking around this stuff. But outside of these circles, it could be somewhat controversial. I'm going to be talking about biblical inspiration and about inerrancy. Um, and uh, so the leadership of the church thought, we, we know from experience that uh, when there's a controversial point out there, uh, those who oppose the point don't necessarily represent it fairly uh, or objectively or in its best light. And so we thought, it's better for, to have folks, this book's coming out, could be controversial, you may be getting calls from people saying, what are you doing in that stupid church? And so it's better for you to hear it from me than to hear it from the, the Christian gossip mill. Uh, and that's, of course, I'm talking to a few, one or two or three people listening through podcasts or who are in this auditorium who aren't going to go out and buy this book immediately after hearing this message. Most of you, I'm sure, are. But for those who aren't, we want you to hear it from the horse's mouth instead of from the, the rumor mill. And, and I'll just say this. So the rest of this message and next week will be on this, this topic of inspiration and inerrancy. And I, know that as we're going through this, this is not a doctrine of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, this is Greg Boyd's perspective on a problem. Uh, and so I offer it as a solution to a problem. If you think it works, wonderful. If you don't think it works, that's fine as well. Um, in fact, if you find something better that works, please let me in on that. I would like to know about it. Um, but uh, so I'm going through this, just, I ask you to keep an open mind and consider it. Now, if you come from, uh, if you're new here to the church, like in the last year or so, and if you come from a strongly conservative American evangelical background where inerrancy was kind of held up as the all-important doctrine, uh, the first part of my message you'll be going yay with, the second part of my message you're going to be going, what the heck? And, and I, I'd be okay with being, what the heck, okay, being confused or whatever. Um, I just ask that you hear me out, all right? Just, you're free to reject it, but at least know what you're rejecting. All right. Though I may end up convincing everybody. I don't know. We'll see here. I'll start with this passage, which is probably the most famous passage uh, dealing with biblical inspiration. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here Paul, or some scholars say it's a disciple of Paul, writes this, All scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is theonoustos. Now, I, I like the translation God-breathed. That's the NIV translation. Uh, the more common translation is to say it's divinely inspired. That too, you know. And so um, they're running the aisles. Hallelujah. But see, divinely inspired, we say a lot of things are divinely inspired. We say that, uh, oh, that, you know, that, that message was inspired or inspiring or that poem was just inspired or, man, you were anointed with that. And we use that for a lot of things. And so when we use that same phrase for the Bible, I, it just doesn't capture the uniqueness of the Bible. In fact, you can come away with the idea that the Bible is inspiring the same way that reading a great poem is inspiring. But the Bible's more than that. It's God-breathed. 
Uh, now, Paul here, or his disciple, is talking about the Old Testament, because that's the only scripture that they had at the time. But the church immediately took the writings of Paul and some other apostles and, and put them on the same par as the Old Testament. And so the church has always confessed that all the writings of the entire canon, both in the Old and the New Testament, are God-breathed. Some of you may have questions about, like, how come the canon? The canon just means rule. That's what that word means. And, and so the canon is kind of the rule of Scripture. All the writings in the Bible are called within the canon. And, and Catholics and Protestants have always believed that everything in the canon, if you disagree about the particulars of where the canon ends or begins, all of it is God-breathed. And I don't have the time to do this now, but I would argue that actually this teaching is anchored in Jesus himself. He told his disciples that uh, the Spirit would lead them into all truth and bring to remembrance everything he said, and the world will believe on him through their word and, and things like that. And, and so all my reasons for believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and I've got a lot of them, but all those reasons are now reasons for believing that his view of Scripture is correct. And, and, and Jesus, I think, held that everything in the Old and what was going to come in the New Testament is God-breathed. This is the way it's expressed in the church tradition is, is like this. They say that it's the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of the Bible. The plenary, which means the full inspiration of the Bible. And what it means is that Christians have always, traditionally, up until very recently, held that the whole Bible, everything in the canon, uh, is fully inspired. Uh, it's not that some parts are more inspired than others. No, it's all God-breathed. Some parts may be more inspiring than others. That's certainly the case. But it's all God-breathed. I hold to that teaching. I think that is true. I think it's, it's rooted in the teachings of Jesus. Um, and and, and it, it, it's rooted in the church tradition. And the Lord said that he would be with us. And I believe the Spirit was guiding us as, as, as they put together uh, the canon. And I think that's a very important doctrine to hold on to. Especially because some folks are backing off of this. One of the reasons I wrote... Uh, inspired imperfection is to talk to progressive, more progressive-minded Christians, progressive-minded evangelicals. Some of them are, are folks who really get the kingdom theology about a Jesus-looking God raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And, and, and they, a lot of their critiques of the, the church are accurate and I would agree with. But see, I worry that if you start backing off of your commitment to the authority of Scripture, history shows that when groups do that, they tend to float into outer space. They just tend to like float into la-la land. The most recent, I think, example of this is the Immersion Church. Some of you know about this. Uh, this is a progressive, kind of progressive thinking evangelicals in the 90s who kind of had a new vision for what the church was supposed to be. And, and, and they, they had a lot of good critiques of the American evangelicalism and, and some good, good critiques of, of the view of the Bible held by a lot of evangelicals. Uh, they, they, they made the argument that, that uh, American evangelicals tend to have an idolatrous view of the Bible, as though the Bible was the center of our faith. And they, they, they argued that it's not the center of our faith. It's, it, it's, the center of our faith is a person, not a book. The center of our faith is Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is very important to point us to Jesus Christ, but it's not to be itself an object of faith. No, it's there as the means of introducing us to Jesus Christ and then transforming our character into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul meant when he said it's useful for rebuking and correction and all of that kind of thing. It transforms us. So they saw that, and that's good. But see, some of them, and some of them began to say, you know, we got to take seriously the humanity of the Bible. It's got some errors. It's got some mistakes. And scholarship shows that, you know, Moses didn't write all the books of the Bible, and we have to take that seriously. We can't pretend like that scholarship isn't there. And I actually agree with that. But because they had this understanding that 
yeah, there's, there's a lot of human stuff in the Bible, even fallible stuff in the Bible. Some began to think that, that's, that that means it's not as authoritative, authoritative as they used to think. And they back off of that. And, and, and some would even begin to say, and they're still saying it, that, well, you know, don't worry about that because that didn't really happen. Or don't worry about that, that's just in the Old Testament. Or don't worry about that, that the Bible's full of a lot of weird stuff and that's just one of the weird things. See, no, if you hold the whole thing as divinely inspired, it at the very least means this. That you have to take everything in the canon seriously. You're not free just to dismiss it. You're not free just to say, eh, that's stupid. Uh, the minute you say, the minute you say, I don't care, or that doesn't matter, it, the minute you're free just to dismiss what's ever in the Bible, well, now, now look at, you no longer have a text that is authoritative over you. You have a you that's authoritative over the text. And now, if a community cuts the tether with biblical authority, see what happens is now the highest ruling authority in that community is now personal preference. I don't like that, and therefore it's not true. That can't be a legitimate option, I don't think, for, 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 for Christians. Um, you don't see anyone in the New Testament treating the Old Testament that way. No, Jesus regards it all as God-breathed. It's, at the very least, it means you've got to take it seriously. You've got to wrestle with it. And the church has always been fine with having a lot of different interpretations of, of Scripture and things like that. That's fine. But it's never been okay with saying, eh, if that's just a weird thing, who cares? No, we've always got to wrestle with this. You can think of the Bible as, as and this is how it's functioned throughout church history, it's sort of our constitution. You know, judges are free to interpret the constitution in different ways, and the Lord knows they do, and they go back and forth on that. But what judges are never allowed to do is to say, I don't care what the constitution says, here's my ruling. The minute a judge would say that, if that becomes a legitimate thing to say, then the Constitution becomes optional, and now you have a free-for-all. You've got nothing to anchor the community. I think this is why God anchored the Christian community in a book, in a, in a collection of books. It's our Constitution. It's what holds us together, and we can have a lot of difference of opinion on a lot of stuff, but we've got to hold to something that's a common reality, it's a common commitment, and historically, that's been, this, the, it's been the Bible. So call me a fundamentalist if you want, but uh, I believe that as we are heading into this post- Christian, post-modern, post-factual, post-everything world where everything is up for grabs and who knows what's fake news and what's not fake news and, and what's real and what's not real and if, if there is any kind of truth in a world that is this ambiguous, we need something solid, amen? Something we can rally around. And I'm saying it's been the word of God, the Bible, the God-breathed Bible. I'm holding to that. And hear me say that now. I'm saying it passionately and strongly with conviction because what I'm going to say next will, let some, will lead some people to think, oh, he doesn't really believe in the inspiration of the Bible. I guarantee you, I, I be, this is my first rodeo. So lock that in. I believe in the plenary inspiration of the Bible, and I think it's absolutely crucial that we hang on to that. One of the reasons I wrote this book was to tell these progressive-minded thinking people, look, at, you're, you're right about what you're saying about the Bible, but those problems that you're pointing out, they don't undermine the authority of Scripture. They enhance it. At least if you, look, if you understand inspiration from a perspective of the cross, which I'll get to in a little bit, uh, these, these problems are not problems. The Bible's fine just as it is. The problems help and enhance the authority of the Bible. Now, that was the first reason I wrote this book. Here's the second reason. And now, you folks who are from conservative American evangelical backgrounds and are new here, buckle your seatbelts, keep an open mind, and uh, yes. Just keep on reminding yourself, I do believe in the full inspiration of the Bible. Because here's the second thing, the reason I wrote it. I am so grieved and so tired of seeing young people walk away from the faith because someone convinced them that there's a contradiction or an error or an inaccuracy in the Bible. 
Now, here, here's the thing. I am overall impressed with the, the continuity of, of, of the Bible, given how, how long a period of time it was written and how many different people and different perspectives were written in it. It's amazing how much unity and continuity there is. And overall, I'm impressed with the general historical reliability of Scripture, especially with the Gospels where it's most important, because the reliability of the Gospels, which I think you can demonstrate historically, well, that's what grounds our faith in the historical Jesus. So I'm impressed with, overall, the general reliability of Scripture. But when you go further and you say it has to be inerrant, well, you could be setting somebody up for a fall. Now, the logic behind it, and this is what most evangelicals believe, this is what I believe through much of my life, and it may be what a lot of you believe. The reasoning is a perfect God has to inspire, has to breathe a perfect book. How could a perfect God inspire a book that's got mistakes and errors in it? Uh, That seems like a contradiction. So the Bible must be perfect. It must be inerrant without any errors because God doesn't make any mistakes. It sounds really good, but you send a young person or could be anyone out into the world with that belief. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you it's a hard doctrine to defend, the inerrancy of the Bible. And it's a danger. I, I, I believe it's dangerous. And I am exhibit A on this, all right? So I, I become a Christian at the age of 17 before my senior year in high school. I have a year where I'm living on the experiences with God, and I had some real powerful encounters with God in that church. But part of the things they taught us was that the Bible is inerrant. It's got to be inerrant because God's perfect, so the Bible has to be perfect. So I'm believing the Bible must be perfect. After my year of bliss as a senior in high school, obnoxiously witnessing to everything that breathed, I, uh, uh, I go to the U of M. I take a course, my first semester as a freshman, the Bible is literature. And it might as well have been entitled, Why You're Stupid If You Believe This Bible Is Inerrant. Because it just, it blew my faith. I, I wanted to believe, I didn't want to be a pagan, but this just completely destroyed my faith. Because it wasn't hard to show me that there's some errors in the Bible. So I, I'm going to give you a little snippet of this right now, okay? A little snippet. This will be probably the weirdest thing you'll ever hear from a preacher, uh, from any kind of a quasi-evangelical church, because I'm going to now be pointing out some of the errors in the Bible. (laughs) What did you learn today in in, in church? Well, the Bible's got a lot of errors in it. Okay, so here. Here's a little sampling, all right? Um, And I I don't know why I chose to draw this first uh, example of this, but here's the thing. Here's how the Bible views the world. It it views the world the way all ancient Near Eastern people viewed the world. Uh, Here's the world. It's a little disc. Uh, it's even called a disc in the book of Job. And that disc is, is held up by pillars. Right? And there's waters all around that disc. Everyone in the ancient Near East believed this. Uh, and those waters are kind of hostile because they had, a, in the ancient Near East, a love-hate relationship with the water. They loved the water, but also could, it was so destructive. And so they saw these waters as hostile, always trying to threaten the earth. And so we have all these passages in the Bible about how God has to rebuke the water and hold the water at bay, those raging waters. He's the one who, who holds them in place. And, and, and there's a dome over the whole thing, a firmament. In, in Genesis 1, it's called a firmament. The, the Hebrew word means something firm, something solid. They believe the sky was solid. Because if you didn't know any better, it looks solid. It looks like a dome. And, and, and it's got to be solid. Hard as molten lava, it says in the book of Job, uh, because it holds up all this water. Yeah, that's water up here, H2O. Uh, although they didn't see it as H2O. They always thought it was more than that. But, but okay, so it holds up water. So in Genesis 1, uh, God puts a firmament in the midst of the water, and he separates the waters above from the waters below. It's like he puts a cookie sheet in there, raises it up, and then bends it over it, and that's, how, that's the view of creation we have. And there's windows up here, floodgates. 
that are opened up. Because how else is the water going to get through that ferment to rain, right? Come on. Um, and so we read stuff like, you know, Genesis 7, 11 says he, he opened up the windows of heaven and the rains came down. And we think it's poetry. But this is actually how they viewed the world back then. We've got, in Egypt, we've got some depictions of the cosmos, and it's very much like this. Oh, and there's, uh, yeah, there's monsters in the sea. Sea monsters. <laughs> Leviathan. Arrgh. It's amazing. My, my, my drawing skills have not improved since kindergarten. Uh, and, 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 and there's Rahab and Behemoth uh, and, and other, uh, other ancient monsters. Oh, and Leviathan has many heads. Did you know that? Uh, Yahweh smashed the heads of Leviathan, it says in Psalm 74. And, and Leviathan, he breathes out smoke out of his nose and fire out of his mouth and, and eats iron and all that other stuff. And that's all in the Bible. Now, here's the thing. Um, that's how ancient people viewed the Bible. And if you're looking at the Bible, to find the God who's revealed on the cross, as I'm going to argue in a moment, we should. Uh, the God who is always entering into solidarity with humans exactly where they are. The God who doesn't use coercion to perfect people, but rather uses love to influence people. Well, then you come upon passages like this, and I find them to be beautiful, magnificent, because they bear witness to a God who's willing to enter into the worldviews of his people, as primitive as they are, uh, in order to move them in a certain direction. A God who, who doesn't, he accommodates the views of the people, he doesn't coercively lobotomize their brain to get them to think true thoughts or to download Einstein's theory of relativity. God could have done that, but that's not the kind of God he is. He doesn't coercively change things, he influentially moves people. And so I think it's beautiful. But if you're saying the Bible is without any kind of error, you got a problem. Because last I checked, there aren't any real sea monsters out there. In fact, I don't even think the earth is surrounded by water, now that you think about it. Um, it's not scientifically accurate. And you can say, well, who cares? And I don't care. But I, would, I used to care because the Bible was supposed to be inerrant. And when I, I learned this in that class I took, boof, well, that was the first little crack in the armor there. But it wasn't the only one. Then I learned that there's all these parallels to, to things in the Bible. I thought if the Bible's God-breathed, it must be altogether unique. But there's all sorts of scholarly evidence that shows that a lot of the material of the Bible was actually borrowed from other sources, earlier sources. A lot of the, the laws in the Bible came from the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, it, it, it's a code that, that King Hammurabi came up with, and it, it predates the biblical material by 800 to 1,000 years. And you find a lot of the same kind of rules and laws and stuff, even the more barbaric rules, uh, they come out of the Code of Hammurabi. It's, it shows that they are, are influenced by the same kind of culture. And I thought, well, gosh, if, 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 if this is all God-breathed, how could they be using other sources? That, that's just a, some of the, the material that is applied to God when God's depicted as a warrior, a fire-breathing dragon who flies down the sky and incinerates people, the songs that are attributed to him are songs we find exact parallels with them in the surrounding ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures. And, and in fact, some cases, the biblical authors seem to have just taken the song that was sung to Baal or, or Marduk or some other deity, switched out their name, and put in Yahweh. And some of the Psalms do that. And I was thinking, how could that possibly be God-breathed? And yet, on the authority of Jesus, I believe it is God-breathed. But it means God's breathing is maybe a little more complex than I thought, because it doesn't exclude people actually being influenced by other pagan sources and how they view the world and things like that. And then, finally, I just came to the conclusion that there are contradictions, and just hear me out on this, there are some contradictions, there are some errors, some mistakes, uh, some inaccuracies that you find in Scripture. I'll just give you a few, all right? A little sampling here. For example, uh, 
you have to ask the question, did God make humans after he made animals, as Genesis 1 says, or, or before he made animals, as Genesis 2 says? In Genesis 2, you know, God saw that it's not good for man to be alone, so he, he brings all the animals, so Adam can name them. And, and, and he creates them to find a help me for Adam. None of them work, and that's why you, you get women, according to Genesis 2 and 3. Um, okay, so that it, you're not going to answer that question by appealing to the Bible, because the Bible comes on both sides of things. Did Yahweh incite David to sin, as it says in 1 Samuel, or did Satan incite David to sin? No, most critical scholars argue that the author of Chronicles is actually correcting the author of 1 Samuel. Um, and that shows progressive revelation. Early on, they didn't have a clear distinction between God and Satan. As time went on, they got clear on that. So the author is correcting the earlier uh, uh, author. And you find that happening quite a bit in the Bible. Uh, but it raises problems with inerrancy because they can't both be true. Does God visit the iniquity of parents upon children to the third and fourth generation? Do, does God punish kids for what the parents do? As it says in, in Exodus 34 or Numbers 14. Or does God never punish the uh, children for what the parents do, as Ezekiel claims? Again, I, I would suggest we, what we're dealing here is progressive revelation. But kind of messes with your doctrine of inerrancy. Did David pay 50 or 600 pieces of silver for Ormond's threshing floor? Now, who gives a flying rip about how many pieces of silver he paid? I don't. But, see, that's, that's the problem, is that the minute you put in inerrancy on the table... Now the littlest, most trivial error becomes monumental. It's potentially lethal. It, 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 the whole foundation of your faith is going to hang on your ability to try to reconcile these two statements. Did Yahweh bless King Jehoiakim with a son to continue his reign, or did God judge him by preventing him from having a son, as it says in Jeremiah? What do you do with that? And then finally, uh, Jesus in, in, in Mark 2, he claims that David ate showbread in the temple when Abiathar was a high priest, when in fact, if you go back and check, it was actually Ahimelech, Abiathar's father, who was the high priest at the time. So Mark or Jesus seem to have gotten their, their Old Testament a little mistaken. Um, well, what do you do with this? All right, this is. Now, here's the thing it's not like there's a dozen or so problems in the Bible. Uh, no, there's hundreds, there's thousands. You could write an encyclopedia of all the problems that are in the Bible. The proof of that is that someone did. Gleason Archer wrote a book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. I read it. It's a very long book because there's a lot of biblical difficulties. And Gleason Archer, God bless him, he tries to explain all of them away. Uh, and some of his explanations are perfectly reasonable. Others are really quite a stretch. But at some point you begin to feel, or at least I begin to feel like, like, like I don't know, it's like you're trying to plug a leaky dam. You know, oh, there's an error. Okay, I can explain that one. Oh, I can explain that error. Okay, I can explain that error too. I can explain that error. Okay, I, I can, I can hear, I can explain. Well, at some point, it's like, maybe this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, if, if inerrancy is so important to God, why does it take an encyclopedia to show how it's inerrant? Shouldn't it be a little more obvious than that? If, if, if inerrancy is so important to God, then why did he make the Bible seem to be so full of errors? Uh, which maybe we should reframe the whole thing. Maybe we're missing the point if we're trying to plug a leaky dam. I at least began to feel like that, and it just seems increasingly implausible that uh, this is the right way to proceed. As we're gonna, this believing in the Word of God hang on our ability to resolve all those answers. Part of the reason I wrote Inspired Imperfection is, is for people, these evangelicals, who, who are we're sending them out into the universities and and with this idea that the Bible is a perfect book and it's got to be perfect if it's going to be divinely inspired. 
and they learn that it's not perfect, and then they lose their, 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 their view of the Bible being inspired at all. I'm trying to tell them, no, those problems, if, if you want to call them problems, fine, but those problems, those contradictions, those inaccuracies, they don't undermine at all the divine authority of the Bible. In fact, they enhance its authority. Now, the question you wanted me to answer is, how do they enhance that authority? And I'll answer that more next week than I will this week, but I'll give you a little snippet of what's to come. To start, I'll start with this. Whenever you're addressing any theological issue, or any philosophical issue, really, I think any issue, uh, any issue whatsoever, it's all important to be aware of where you're starting. What's your reference point at the start? What are your assumptions at the start? Because where you start as you process a problem, whether it's theological, philosophical, financial, whatever, where you start will determine where you finish. Now, the Bible tells us our starting point, where we're supposed to start. And all of our thinking about God, it tells us where to start. Uh, check out this passage, Colossians chapter 2. Here's a starting point. Paul says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. Christ is God's mystery. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. Think about this. Now when Paul says Christ, he always means crucified Christ. I'll show this in a minute. He uses those interchangeably. The crucified and risen Christ is, is Christ and that's the message of the cross. The cross is the center of it all and I think the whole New Testament shows that as I argue in, in, in my book. And Paul says that in the crucified Christ are hidden all of the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. Now if all of the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are found in the crucified Christ, why would you look anywhere else to get any wisdom and knowledge about God? If you want to know what God is like, it's all found in the crucified Christ. Are you following me on this? So that should be our starting point. The answer to every theological question we have is ultimately going to lead us back to the cross. I, I agree with Jurgen Moltmann. He's one of my favorite theologians, and he says this in, the, in, in his great book, The uh, Crucified Christ, or uh, no, The Crucified God. But he says, the cross holds the key that unlocks the mystery of all Christian doctrines. And I am increasingly convinced that that is the, the case. It's, so we have to, if we want to know what God's, what it is like for God to breathe, rather than going with our common sense, which has always screwed us up, a perfect God should breathe a perfect book. That's how we always think about things. That's how the Jews were thinking about the Messiah. A perfect God should bring a perfect Messiah. And a perfect Messiah would be the one who is going to, well, if God's victorious, the, the Messiah would be victorious, right? If God's pro-Israel, the Messiah would be pro-Israel. If, if, if God is opposed to our enemies, then the Messiah would be opposed to our enemies. So the Messiah is supposed to come and defeat the Romans and liberate Israel. That's what a perfect Messiah is. Guess what? God doesn't fit our preconceptions at all. Jesus comes and gets crucified. And they're going, what the heck? That's not, that doesn't look like a perfect Messiah. Um, you know, it's, we've been imposing our common sense on God all throughout history. God, when he shows up and reveals himself, he shows that he doesn't fit our common sense conceptions very well at all. Um, so in Christ, lock that in. All of God's wisdom and knowledge is found in the crucified Christ. Now, to flesh out the difference that it makes when you think about inspiration, when you think about how God breathes, instead of relying on our common sense, let's look at the cross. How does God breathe the revelation on the cross? And to flesh out the difference that this makes in how you think about inspiration, I'm going to look at one more error in the Bible. But it's a really important error. Because I think it, it, it holds a clue, it unlocks a, a secret about how, God, how God's breathing is different than uh, how humans maybe would, would think of it. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He's talking about a division in, in, uh, uh, at Corinth 
um, different teachers had come to Corinth, and, and as people would get converted, they would baptize them. So you have people being baptized by different people. And at Corinth, that became a dividing point. I was baptized by, by Paul. I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by Apollos. And, and somehow that's a competition thing. So Paul's responding to that. And he says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. So pause here for a second. So Paul here, is, he, he, he wants to say, man, I'm so glad that I didn't baptize very many of you, so I don't have these kind of cult-like people claiming I'm of Paul and, and I'm a part of the competition. And Paul wants to make this point because he wants to represent the unity of the body of Christ. He wants to transcend these petty arguments. And he thinks he does because he didn't baptize anyone except Christmas and Gaius. Except then he, then he realizes that that's not quite true. So he says, okay, I also, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Um, yeah, that's right, the household of Stephanus. Okay, baptized that them. And then he realizes even that statement isn't quite true. Because now he realizes he might have baptized other people as well. There could be a whole bunch of people out there that he baptized. He can't, he can't remember. He can't remember. Which, if you think about it, ruins his whole argument. <laughs> his whole point was, I thank God that I'm like, the, like those other teachers who've got those followers. Oh, I guess I am. Shoot. So his whole point is blown. Now here's the thing, folks. Listen to this now. I believe the whole Bible is God-breathed. This verse is in the Bible, therefore I believe this verse is God-breathed. But an authority of this God-breathed ver- passage, I think I can safely say that the Bible's not inerrant. It teaches that it's not inerrant. Paul clearly didn't think he, what he was writing was inerrant because he corrects himself twice. It's all God-breathed, but notice this. It's God-breathed, but it still involves Paul's imperfection. Um, I'm sure that God knows exactly who Paul baptized and who he didn't baptize. I'm pretty sure of that, right? God's perfect. He's got a perfect memory. But obviously, God didn't download his perfect memory into the Apostle Paul. Because what we find in this passage is an imperfect memory. And yet, it's all God-breathed. So clearly, when God breathes, look at this, it doesn't eliminate the imperfections of the people that he breathes through. It doesn't take away their, their funky worldviews. Doesn't, God doesn't lobotomize change in people. He breathes through them exactly as they are. And then Paul adds this, and this is what really blew me away. He goes, well, you know what? It's fine because God didn't send me to baptize. That's not the point. He sent me to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent words of wisdom, but rather, or not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross, listen to this, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So I think it's Paul's flub up made him think this thought. Look at you guys, okay. My memory's imperfect. I don't quite know who I baptized in. My argument just fell apart. But you know what? Uh, God sent me to preach the gospel not with eloquent words of wisdom. I don't have a lot of wisdom sometimes, and I'm not very eloquent. He talks about those super apostles, these competitors, these false apostles. They were eloquent. They had all, oh, they looked good, man. They were snazzy, whatever. Paul, he wasn't that impressive. But he says, I thank God for that because if I was eloquent, if I was wise, if I was inerrant, that would rob the cross of its power. He's not embarrassed by the fact that he's fallible. He glories in it because if he was infallible, it would compromise the the power of the cross. This is why it's so important to lock it in that all of God's, all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are found in the crucified Christ. Because when you focus on the Christ, all your assumptions about things get turned upside down. And all of a sudden, what Paul is saying is what's a disadvantage, what looks like a disadvantage from a human point of view, God uses as an advantage. That's the logic of the cross. 
And he does this quite a bit in his writings. Uh, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, or 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, he's got this thorn in the flesh, right? And scholars debate what that is, but it's some kind of physical impairment that he apparently was kind of embarrassed about. But he says, three times I appealed to the Lord about this, take it away from me. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. He's what he says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, and whenever he says Christ, he means the crucified Christ, uh, that the power of the crucified Christ may dwell in me. When I am weak, then he is strong. Paul's not embarrassed by his fallibilities. He's glorying in them. Look, this is how great God is. God can use someone like me to accomplish his purposes. In fact, God's always been using weak people like me, fallible people like me, sinful people like me to accomplish God's purposes, and that's how God displays his greatness. The logic of the cross turns everything upside down. Uh, one more passage, and this kind of sums up everything here. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says this, the message about the cross, that's the gospel, it's all centered on the cross. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It looks dumb. And to those who are being saved, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified. That's the message of the cross. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. And now he says just Christ, but he means crucified Christ. He's still talking about the gospel of the cross. The crucified Christ is the power of God, and the crucified Christ is the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. <laughs> Folks, this is the logic of the cross. Everything is turned upside down. Um, it's, 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 it's. So on the cross, God reveals his power by appearing weak. God reveals his wisdom by taking on human foolishness. On the cross, God reveals his greatness by taking on our shame. He's glorified in Christ's humiliation. On the cross, God reveals his holiness by diving headlong into our sin. He reveals his glory by diving into our hell. He reveals his love by taking on our hatred. Because the glory of God, the love of God, is God's willingness to enter into solidarity with people in the worst of all conditions in order to redeem them from the, the, those conditions. That's what God does on the cross, and the cross reveals, reveals what God is always like. And if the whole Bible is there to point us to the cross and to form us into the image of the cross and take on his character, um, well, if the cross is weak and foolish, why would you think the Bible also, which is there to inspire to point to the cross, why would you think it's not also going to look weak and foolish? Wouldn't you expect a weak and foolish Bible if, you're, if its whole purpose is to point you to a weak and foolish cross where you get the weak and foolish God perfectly revealed? And is revealed in all of his beauty by his willingness to take on our weakness and our fallibility and all that. Um, if, folks, if the cross reveals what God's always been like, the cross reveals what God is like when he breathed the Bible. The same God who breathed the cross revelation, the full revelation of himself, is the God who breathes the scripture. And, and okay, notice this. I got three minutes. Okay, lock in these last three minutes. This is the most important thing here, right? If on the cross, we have the full revelation, the definitive revelation of God. This isn't one revelation among others. This is the revelation that sums up and culminates all others. All of God's knowledge, wisdom, and, uh, is contained in, in, in the crucified Christ. Now, on the cross, God revealed himself perfectly through one who bore all that is sinful, all that is wrong, all that's broken, all that's imperfect in the world. Jesus bore all that. If God revealed himself through the one who bore all the sin and imperfections of the world, why would anyone think that it's a problem for God to reveal himself through sin and imperfections? Why would anyone think that 
errors, normal errors, mistakes, or even sinful stuff, cultural condition stuff, human stupid stuff, why would anyone think that's an obstacle to God revealing himself? God can't reveal himself through an erroneous Bible. Why would you ever come to that conclusion if the center of your faith is that God revealed himself through the one who bore all that sinful and broken in this world? you see the logic of this? And notice this. Paul doesn't say, God used me uh, despite the fact that I have a thorn in the flesh and that I have a faulty memory and I'm not eloquent. No, Paul is saying God uses me precisely because I don't have wisdom, because I'm not inerrant, because I have a faulty memory, because I have a thorn in the flesh. For I, my weakness is his power. He displays his power in my weakness. And so, so also with the Bible, folks, the, the problems of the Bible, so-called problems, the errors, the, the inaccuracies, um, they're not a threat to our faith any more than the sin on the cross is a threat to our faith. We don't say that the cross is a revelation of God despite the fact that Jesus bore all the sin of the world. Yeah, he looks kind of ugly and he looks kind of guilty. He's bearing all that shame. But despite that, God, God revealed, is revealed in him. No, God's revealed in him precisely because he bears all the sin of the world, uh, all, all, the, all that's broken in the world, all the shame of the world. Because he's revealing that God's the kind of God who dives into that stuff. And that's what the whole Bible testifies. And the problems, the errors, the mistakes also testify to that if we'll just let them do that. We should be no more embarrassed by the problems, the mistakes, the human fallibility of the Bible than we are embarrassed by the sin of the cross, the fallibility of, of all that Jesus bore. You see that? Account? No, the, whole, the center of our faith is the crucified Christ. And the Bible, with all of its human stuff, is that the perfect book to point to that. Because God's always been using the weak things of this world to confound the wise. The foolish things to... to amen! In my view... The Bible's perfect just as it is. I wanted to entitle this book Perfect Imperfection. Uh, it, but the uh, publishers thought that was too confusing. So the inspired imperfection, that's fine. But, but I, I, what if the Bible's perfect just as it is? And see, I, I believe the Bible is infallible. If, if you read it, if you trust it to do what God wanted it to do, if you trust it to point to the God who is revealed on the cross, it does it perfectly Nowhere more so than when you discover problems, contradictions, normal human stupid stuff. It all points to the glory of God who's real on the cross. And now your faith, you see, now your faith isn't vulnerable. I, 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 if, if you have a right view of inspiration, you can take any course you want on the Bible and come up with any problem, and it wouldn't phase you. Not, your faith is virtually invincible as long as you know where you st why you believe in Jesus in the first place. Uh, and so I wrote that book to try to get, help people have a... A, a more invincible kind of a faith, a faith that can stand up under any kind of criticism. Last thing I'll say, because I'm out of time, is this. Um, I find that when I, when I finally accepted the Bible for what I really think it is, I fell more in love with it. Because, you know what, uh, if God can use these broken people to, inspire, to, to breathe out his word, if God can use fallible, stupid people like that, well, then there's hope for you and me. And, and amen, amen. And that's what the kingdom's all about. As broken as you are, as screwed up as you are, man, God can use you precisely because you have the past you have. God can turn all of that to your advantage. The enemy will tell you and the world will tell you that it's all a disadvantage. Oh, too bad that you've got this ailment. You've had this past. You've got this screw up. You have whatever. No, don't live in that too bad kind of thing. Don't live in regret. God Surrender that to God, and God can bring something beautiful out of it, just like he brings something beautiful out of Scripture, despite all the silliness that's in there. Hallelujah. Stand up. All right. Uh, we'll complete. I'm sure you got a lot of questions, so be texting in those questions. We'll address all of them on that Wednesday, uh, and I'll uh, address a few more uh, ne next week as we finish up this series on things.
Thanks for hearing me out. Hey, if you're here this morning and have anything that could use prayer, uh, I'd like to ask our prayer teams to come up here by the stairs and encourage you to come up here and, and pray with them. Maybe what you need prayer for is your head's spinning around so fast right now, you got a neck sprain, you know? So come up here and, and, and pray with them. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I encourage you to consider becoming one. If you want to find out more about that, just come up here and talk to these folks, and they would love to explain what it is to become a disciple of Jesus. As we leave here, can we do it as a people who are confident uh, in the in inspiration of the Scripture and in the God who meets us just as we are, loves us as we are, and uses us just as we are? If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. All right, see you next week.